Hello and welcome to the Modern House podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House. For those of you who haven't come across us before, we're a design-led estate agency. In this podcast series, I'm talking to people we admire and asking them to pick their three favourite homes from anywhere in the world. We're aiming to show how a well-designed home can enhance your life and ultimately make you happier. My guest today is Tom Broughton. Tom is the founder of Cubits, a modern spectacles brand that began as a passion project around his kitchen table in King's Cross in 2013 and now has nine stores and workshops around London. London is deeply embedded in the identity of the Cubits brand, with frames named after city streets and the design of each store being a site-specific response to the urban context. Tom's obsession with modernist architecture saw him set up a Facebook appreciation page for the iconic Isocon building in Hampstead. As fate would have it, he ended up buying the penthouse via the modern house in 2018. I've come to visit Tom at the Isocon for a good snoop around. Good to see you. You well? Very very well, thank you. Good. We are right at the top of the Isocon, which is a white ocean liner of a building, I think you'd agree, built in 1934 by Wells Coates. And it's very much one of the best examples of early modern architecture in London. Uh, grade one listed, so very heavily protected. This particular flat is just an incredible museum piece, I think. What's it like to live in this place? I mean, it was built as a set of homes, right? So it still manages to retain a real residential sense, right? And, and, you know, Wells Coates, when he was designing, it was thinking about how people would live in it and the Pritchards, you know, the, the driving force and the finances behind it were trying to build a new residential experience. So I like to think it feels like a home, but it, but it also has this aura around it, which, uh, you know, you feel in every single little room. And you realise, especially when each each single little part of it is so considered from the position of the windows to the light switches to the doorknobs to the size of the kitchen and the relative size of the living room to the kitchen um you realize that you are living in the the consequences of a whole bunch of design decisions that were made however many 80 odd years ago okay so tom as you know we've asked you to pick your three favorite living spaces from anywhere in the world unsurprisingly this place is your first choice can you take us around for a little tour that'd be great absolutely I'd love to. thank you uh, so, Tom, we're going to start here at the front door, uh, which looks like a bomb-proof submarine door or something like that. What's the story behind it? So this door is um, made from material called Plymax. So the Pritchards, Jack and Molly Pritchard. Jack was uh, a salesman for a company called Vanesta that produced plywood. And he was really interested in, this is the late 20s, really interested in showing off plywood for... Uh, its intrinsic qualities. I think the general public saw it as an inferior substitute to solid wood. So here is um, it's a copper-faced plywood. You only have made one. It actually ended up in the, the gallery downstairs, so you can go and see the original door. And then in 2004, they commissioned the remake of a Plymax door. Okay. I think it's a suitable entrance, really, to it really is. the building. It's amazing. So the first thing you get as you come in is you get a small kitchen off to the right-hand side. Let's try and squeeze in here, Tom, because so it is not much space. Yeah, it, it is tight. I mean, this this is, I think, the embodiment of Le Corbusier's machine for living, isn't it? How how does it function as a kitchen? Does it work? Yeah, I mean, it works, right? You can do everything you need to do. You know, the, the whole idea of it being so small was that 
when it was built, the isobar, which was the bar and restaurant, which was on the ground floor, that would provide your meals. You know, this was 80 odd years before Deliveroo. Or, you know, <laughs> so it's well, well, well ahead of its time, really. Because each flat had a dumb waiter, didn't it? Yeah, so you just exactly. hoist your dinner up from downstairs. Yeah. So unfortunately, in, in 2004, when it was all redone, the, the dumb waiter was taken away, but it would have been there in the along, corner, yeah. along that, that wall. And you would have you would have pulled up your meal. You'd have made your selection from the three options in the isobar that evening. And could you go down and eat in the isobar as well? Absolutely. That was a thrumming restaurant because there were some amazing residents here, weren't there? I mean, Walter Gropius, the founder of the Bauhaus, was here. Uh, Marcel Breuer was here. Who else? Um, La- uh, Laszlo Holy Nash. Again from the Bauhaus. There was a Soviet spy lived here at one point, right? A bunch of Soviet a spies. A bunch of Soviet spies. Agatha okay. Christie. Agatha Christie wrote a spy novel here, I think. Yeah, James Sterling. In the 30s, it became the centre for the, the Hampstead scene, really, the Hampstead set, which was comprised of painters, authors, philosophers, people like Henry Moore, Barbara Hepworth, Ben Nicholson, Nash, Modrian. It formed a part of the kind of the social scene of Hampstead. Incredible, really. yeah. Let's move on to the bathroom, which is around the corner. So again, this is a bathroom that has really been boiled down to its essentials, hasn't it? It has a bath and a toilet, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, just a place to carry out your ablutions and then get the hell out of Dodge. Precisely. The whole principle behind the layout of this this apartment is you want to maximise the space based on people are going to spend their time. You know, for most people, you don't spend a huge amount of time in the bathroom. The assumption was you wouldn't spend very much time in the kitchen. So if you keep those things deliberately small, then it saves space to use in the living and sleeping areas. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then just back from the bathroom, we've got this beautifully curved ply clad wool so tell us about that tom vanesta when they were producing ply all of the, the wood came from estonia uh, and that's where vanesta the etymology comes from veneer and estonia um, and they use birch and a bit of beach ply and what's amazing is how over time its color has changed the patina that that comes out of what a lot of people would categorize as quite humble material Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a a key point, isn't it? That if you use a natural material, you should just let it do its thing, don't you think? I mean, it it gives you a richness and a texture that you don't get from a plastic, say. Uh, Absolutely. And it's just not replaceable, right? Materials are obviously important to you with what you do as well. What's your approach to materials in the specs that you design? Um, So we always try and use materials that are fit for purpose really yeah. um but because you with, sound with... like a modernist tom a truth to materials <laughs> exactly but this you know there's something about spectacles in that they have to have a, an underlying set of characteristics and properties to make them usable objects right you need to be able to form them you need to shape them you need to, to mill them they need to be light enough so they fit on a human head crucially you need to be able to put the lens in so this is one of the reasons why you don't have frames made out of wood you do, you, but they're never made, very popular. Them out of wood, we I'm have, sure. but they're very, very difficult to glaze. The process of putting a, a lens into the frame. So, I guess it fundamentally starts with an understanding of the human being that is either interacting, using, or wearing this object, and then materials. Materiality is an incredibly important consideration in deciding how you create the product to fit that purpose. Because I've seen some pretty outlandish frames in your place. I think you've got a pair of specs made out of. Objects found by the Thames, for example, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. That was kind of cool, actually. For hundreds of years, spectacles were made from discarded and waste materials, right? So the oldest frame to ever be found in London was found out by Trig Lane, and it was made from cow shin. Frames were often made from uh, horn or leather. And 
we thought we want to kind of tell that story. So why don't we try and make a frame out of rubbish, but not just rubbish, kind of historical rubbish. So we went mudlarking down along the River Thames down by Greenwich and found all manner of stuff. It was like five, six centuries of London in a hall, everything from... Tudor hairpins to old ship's nails. We found a World War II bullet, a boar's tusk, uh, Victorian marbles. We got all these bits together and set them in a resin and then made a frame from it. And it's completely impractical, <laughs> right? But it's, it's a beautiful piece, right? To show six centuries of spectacles in London in a single object. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good. But we, re we really like the idea of kind of material experimentation, right? Yeah. Because nowadays most frames are made from cellulose acetate, which is great, but, you know, that's only really for the last 50, 60 years. Before that, they were made from all manner of weird and wonderful objects, turtle shell, gold, a horn. And there's a particular period I really like, which is after the First World War. There's a real shortage of materials. And they started making frames that were derived from milk. There's material wow. casein, which is, you know, the, when you add rennet into milk, it goes through the entire process and you can finally turn it into sheet material and then make a frame from it. It didn't really catch on because they kind of smell. They but. eventually turned to cottage cheese, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we did a collaboration, didn't we, the Modern House and Cubits together, a pair of frames that we designed together with the first solid gold hinge that you've ever done. When we were designing the frame and we were chatting to the Modern House, we really liked this idea of sort of celebrating the hidden bits, you know, a very sort of architectural viewpoint. And, you know, the hinge is the integral part of a frame, right? For a long time, the sort of spectacle industry flourished around Hatton Garden and Clerkenwell. And a lot of the spectacle-making techniques could also be applied to watchmaking, jewellery-making. So there's always that nice confluence between all these different industries that are all clustered around um, Clerkenwell. And so we thought, why don't we combine those two ideas and commission a jewellery maker to make our hinges out of solid gold. We worked with a goldsmith called Peter Musson, who made the hinges and the pins out of solid gold. And then we stuck to um, quite a sort of classic, functional, enduring design of the frame itself and then made that out of a, a matte acetate. And the result is pretty cool yeah no we we're really pleased with it so the idea was that we'd make this pair of frames and then we would do a raffle and people could buy tickets to win the frames and the proceeds go to maggie's centers which are for those of you who haven't come across maggie's it's an incredible charity where they build architecturally world-class buildings for cancer patients they take all the best architects of the day and create some really amazing buildings and the idea is that patients can be amongst uplifting surroundings, good design, and give you a better life experience. And what can be better than that? And I think this flat, in some ways, is an embodiment of that. Um, let's shimmy into your bedroom. Um, can I say? And of course, a uh, big inspiration for Jack Pritchard when he was designing this flat was Alvar Aalto, who famously built his sanatorium in the late 20s, early 30s, which was all for polio patients to go and live in an architecturally important building as a way to rehabilitate. So it's a very modernist principle. Yeah, modernist, exactly. The modernists, they very much saw a link between architecture and well-being. There's a house called the Lovell Health House in California, and it's, all, it's basically a monument to wellness. You know, there's acres of glass and there's a swimming pool for cooling off and we believe and I think you do as well that a building a structure a space a nest can add so much value to your life just in terms of enriching it making you feel happier frankly and meeting you in this flat I can see that the flat really does that for you doesn't it uh, absolutely the way it kind of makes you sort of feel and resonate and you know wake up in the morning just hearing the bird songs from Belsize Park it has a huge impact on your general well-being and behaviour. Because, you know, you're in London here, you're in an urban environment, but in your bedroom here, you, you have a, a window 
onto nature, don't you? I mean, what, what are these trees here? Well, there's a little protected area called Belsize Park. Yeah. So for a long time, this was a, an area where they, they couldn't get permission to build a house on because there's two underground tracks actually run under this area. So it was kind of left and it was wild. And then in the 20s, the Pritchards managed to buy the plot and get permission. But because of the existence of the uh, train tracks, you can't put too much of a load on it. So that area is still protected and it's and it's beautiful. And then the building was designed around the existence and the permeance of, of that woodland. So all of the, the larger windows are on this side of it. Um, smaller windows face the, the street. The building is just off south facing. So in the late afternoon, you get beautiful sunlight flooding through. As you allude to, you, you couldn't tell that you're in London. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very grey London day today. It's a bit drizzly, but there's still an amazing amount of natural light in this space. And you've got actually quite dark timber cladding. This bedroom, I mean, it, it's modest in proportion, but it's so incredibly kind of cosseting, isn't it? It's incredible. You know, it's like you're being on a on a boat or a Yeah, it's very Orient Express, isn't it? Yeah, and it's particularly nice when it's raining, right? Because you've got the flat roof and you can just hear the uh, the patter of rain on the, on the flat roof and you just feel incredibly cosy. There's something about the warmth of the wood, the soft curves, the natural lighting. I mean, as you see, there's no ceiling light. Wellscoats didn't believe that you should have. It's a real no-no to have a ceiling light in a bedroom. But actually, he didn't believe you should have many ceiling lights. So as you see, as we go around, there's, ve there's actually very few. It should all be up lighting at the same level as where human beings are, are going to be. So in this case, next to the bed. Because, you know, if you imagine lying here in bed and there was a light directly above you in such a small space, that fitting becomes the centre of the space. Yeah. Whereas now... The human beings lying in their bed becomes the centre of the space. Yeah. As you can see, we have these fitted cabinets as well. And, you know, of the space, probably, you know, a good 15% of it is used by these fitted cabinets. But again, he was designing it for him and for living. So there's actually two separate cabinets, wardrobes rather. Um, there is uh, Jack's, which is on the left, again using plywood. Plywood interiors, yeah. Plywood everything, plywood right? Everything, so even incorporating. Wow, what's that then? So it's just a sheet of plywood that is used to allow you to take your clothing from the back of the drawer to make right. it. So you just pull it out from, exactly. the, from the bottom. That's exactly. Amazing. Again, showing off th uh, very thin veneered plywood's uh, flexibility. Right. He's also got a sort of integrated trouser rack. Um, so every single little part of this uh, has been well thought out. And you can see. Down the back, it goes right through. The, the rear of that becomes the wall of the, the living room with this integrated curve. Okay. What is quite interesting is on the other side, Molly's side, his wife's side, is a lot more austere. So she's she's got a rail. <laughs> Everything, you know, has a home. Everything gets put away. You've got, you got Henry the Hoover on Molly's side. Yeah, exactly. This is the one thing. that It's a small flat, right? Yeah. 65 square metres with no real storage apart from this. Yeah. So you have to cram it all into one wardrobe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So in terms of furnishing this room, it's incredibly simple. It's a small room, but you've got an Alvarelto stool with a little lamp on it. So that's a Wagenfeld Bauhaus lamp from mm -hmm. the 1920s. Okay. And then above the bed, you've got a very beautiful painting of a nude. So that's from uh, a Swedish artist, whose name I can't remember, from the 1930s. And how do you attach it to that beautiful panelling out so, of interest? Because this is a grade one listed building, right? So 
you can't do anything new. There are pre-existing holes ah. that I have to use when I'm hanging the art. But I think that's beautiful as well, right? At some point in, in time, this hole was made and probably on the pin that sat out of it, God knows what pieces of artwork would have hung, right? But I'm sure there's probably a Ben Nicholson or a, a Maholi Naj or, you know, they're, they're very well connected to the Hampstead artist community. I think what we're saying here is that this flat is about certain timeless principles, isn't it? It's actually about harnessing natural light in the right way. It's about utilising beautiful natural materials that will be allowed to develop over time. The Alto stool, for example, you're using as a bedside table. I mean, we were recently asked to pick one design object that we felt summarised modern design best. And actually, I think the Alto stool probably does it, partly because it can be a stool, partly because it can be a bedside table, because it's stackable. It's so beautiful in its simplicity, in a way. It comes in different colours. What I like in here is that you've kept it simple and you've used certain timeless pieces, but really you're allowing the space to do its thing, aren't you? Yeah, and, and there's also something kind of quite freeing about, I guess, the diminutive nature of it. By focusing you, you make more considered decisions, right? Yeah, excellent. So moving on, Tom, we're now in the open plan dining and living space. I think what's immediately apparent here is that whereas in the rest of the flat we're quite constricted here we're bursting into a very open space and we feel that sense of contrast me for that sense of freedom in a way one of the most beautiful things in this room is is the checkerboard floor which presumably again is another use of the plywood and showing how it can be utilized yeah exactly so the floor is there originally from 934 it's Vanessa plywood uh, Jack Pritchard has used standard square pieces, but then arranged them in an interesting way. So first of all, they were an angle, but he's used contrasting and offsetting grain, which, you know, most carpenters would tell you should never do because it's just accentuating the fact that it isn't solid wood. But he wanted to accentuate the fact it wasn't solid wood. Particularly at night, the light reflects on it really brings out the contrast and it starts looking like a, like a chessboard. Amazing. So tell us about the way you furnished it here. I've tried to use a mix of Isocom furniture, but also the furniture that I already had before I moved in here. And um, when you say Isocom furniture, is that furniture that were designed specifically for this building? Uh, they were designed in this building um, and they were used in this building, but the idea was that they would have much wider appeal. So after Jack Pritchard left Vanessa, he set up the Isocon furniture company with the idea of using primarily plywood furniture designed based on modernist principles. You can see here we have two long chairs. So they were designed by Marcel Breuer. So when four members of the Bauhaus moved here in the, the 30s, they sort of struggled to find work, but um, Jack Pritchard commissioned them to help him with his various projects. You can also see there's a, an armchair there, which is a Marcel Breuer armchair. Over there is a Gerald Summers trolley. Um, so Gerald Summers was an amazing designer, carpenter, modernist. What he managed to do was inject a sense of personality in the designs he was making, which you can also see in the Penguin Donkey, which while it wasn't just designed by Summers, it was designed in the 30s for the Icecon Furniture Company as a way to hold penguin books. It's got this kind of organic form. It looks like a donkey. And I like that idea of making stuff that is practical, but still has personality. Because I think sometimes people assume that there is that tension between a practicality can make it boring. But I think people like Summers and the Ice Furniture Company proved it didn't have to be like that. 
So does this space work well for parties and events and dinners and things? I mean, I think this space just works well for living in, right? I yeah. mean, because it's, you know, of a 65 square meter flat, this is probably 40 of that 65. And it's just such a usable open space that can be so easily reconfigured. And if you look at the old photos of how it was used, it had a whole bunch of different applications. There used to be a, a red velour curtain, which came sort of a third of the way through, which created a separate room, which was used as a bedroom for a while. It's just a really great functional usable space, which has light coming in from two angles. So it always feels well lit. And the fact that it does then open onto the terrace, which is almost twice as big as the flat itself, gives you this sort of juxtaposition between being inside and outside and an illusion of even more space. Yeah, it's completely seamless, isn't it? And you've also got a lot of plants within the space of bringing nature in as well. If you look at some of the old photos, the Pritchard's always had plants in the space, so it always felt like a kind of natural extension. As you mentioned, just to help create a more harmony really with the space outside. It's amazing, isn't it, the way pot plants have just had a complete renaissance in the last four or five years? I guess given a whole bunch of stuff that's kind of going on now, you know, and people not being able to afford their first homes, but still wanting their home to represent more than just a place that they're in fleetingly before they move on to the next rented place, right? You want something that gives it kind of personality and warmth and plants have become a bit of a segue into that, I think. I think that's right. I think in an urban environment, if you can bring nature in that way, it does give it a sense of it being a living thing. Let's go and have a look at the terrace. Great. So, Tom, you've just pulled back this pair of sliding doors onto this incredibly long terrace, and we really do feel like we're very perched up high here. What can we see around us? We've got the park on one side, but then you can read the height, which sort of feels uh, like it sort of touches the top of all of the, uh, I guess, Georgian buildings that are around and the, the sort of Edwardian ones. But then if you peer back you kind of really start to feel the layers of London so if you sort of look over there you can see a bit of Canary Wharf yeah you, you do get to feel the sense of being kind of high and above everything and of course we're, yeah. we're, we're on a hill here as well which kind of adds to, to that feeling adds to that effect does the air feel cleaner up here do you think I mean it might be psychosomatic but yeah. like I, I, I feel cleaner and healthier yeah yeah also if you look down below our feet now we're standing on the, an original trench heater when this building was built it was the first concrete residential building in the country. And one of the things about concrete is it can get pretty cold. <laughs> so a lot of thought, engineering thought, went into how you heat a space like this. And one of the things they decided to do was build a trench heater by the, the double doors. And you can, you, know, you can feel the warmth coming through now, a kind of simple mechanism, but it works, still works really well. And it's amazing that there's actually very few heating points in this flat. Right. You've got the trench heater here. There's a radiator in the other corner of the room and then a radiator in the hallway. And that's, that's nothing it. Nothing in the bedroom? Nothing in the bedroom. Do you have an electric blanket, hot water bottles? So I've not actually been through like a really cold winter yet, a okay. bracing winter. Okay, um, let us know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Tom, we've now had a seat in the sitting room. Let's move on to your second choice of living space, which is also modernist. And it's the cabanon or the little hut that Le Corbusier built for himself on the south coast of France. Tell us about it for those who don't know it and why you've chosen it. So it is a tiny little hut slash summer house that Le Corbusier built in the 50s, 52, I think. I think he spent every summer there until his death. 
He died while he was swimming off the coast. It's in the Cote d'Azur. It is minuscule. And I think that's one of the reasons I love it. I only came across it when it was, I think, about 10 years ago. There's a thing at Reba where they, they rebuilt a version of it. And I was really taken with the fact that it was so tiny. I think it's like 13 square metres, minuscule. But it was, again, it was sort of designed for function and purpose. And it was designed for, you know, summer. You know, it didn't even have a shower in it because you could either shower outside or you could go and shower in the sea. It didn't have a kitchen in it because the expectation was you're going to eat at the, the little restaurant next door. But despite all that, it has such a strong sense of personality, partly through the design choices he made and partly through the material choices he made, again, using plywood, common theme, on the inside, but then using kind of rough pine on the outside. He decorated it with, with all his murals and for somewhere so small, I think it really exudes, you know, the possibilities. With this flat that we're in at the moment, you were saying that you weren't meant to cook in the kitchen. You got your food from the restaurant down below. This is an even more extreme example of that because Le Corbusier built his hut and attached it to a restaurant with a partition between the two. So Mm -hmm. he could, he could eat and make merry in the restaurant and then literally stagger through the door and fall into his bed. It's an incredibly simple way of living. And that's obviously what he did in his summers. It's possible that he had one of his very decadent meals before he went out swimming and died in the, in the water. Tell us about the, the murals that he's painted inside the interior as well. You go in and obviously you're in and that's it. That's all you can, all you can see, but he created these incredibly uh, vibrant, bright, colorful uh, murals of the human form. I think there was some controversy where, cause it's just down the road from um, the uh, Eileen Gray's, building what's that the e- e- e1027 e1027 uh, and there was some controversy because he painted a particularly bright mural on the outside which did not go down well but again the idea of turning this living space not just into a place where you slept but a place where you could celebrate art and, and to do that in such a small space i was i remember reba being really taken with the the fact that it was designed based on the kind of principles of the golden ratio mm. that he, you know... The modular. Exactly, precisely. The idea that he was, you know, he was obsessed right through his career with the sort of confluence of science and design, but also of of nature and the idea of taking things like the golden ratio and the Fibonacci sequence and applying them to, I guess, the human form and human living. I remember reading that the ceiling height is based on his height, but with his fingers outstretched. So he could just touch the, the ceiling. But again, just designing such a simple house out of pretty quotidian materials, but based around how a human being would at, interact with it, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it as well. We took our team on a little pilgrimage there a few years ago. Uh, and we also had a tour of the Eileen Gray Villa as well. You're right, the murals that Le Corbusier painted on Eileen Gray's villa, she was outraged about. <laughs> and are very controversial. And, and I think historians and others can't quite decide whether they should be there or they shouldn't be there. Some see it as an act of vandalism. Other people think that they're a key part of the history of the building. It's really interesting. But Le Corbusier was, I mean, in my mind, he was the great architect of the last century, but he was also quite a character. He did have a habit of taking all of his clothes off and painting lurid murals around the place. He designed the Ronchamp Chapel when he was in the Cabanon, which is the great building from that era. I think it's just a a great vision that it's such a simple structure and yet the simplicity can inspire this great creativity. 
I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, he was a great modernist in, in that regard, right? And, you know, again, coming back to here, the Isocon, you know, it was famous in the 30s and 40s for nude sunbathing out there on the terrace. So I like the fact that there is this, uh, you know, this really sort of interesting, vibrant, eccentric streak. He also, Le Corbusier, wore great spectacles as well, which is another he reason to did. like did. Have you continued the nude sunbathing thing? <laughs> it's, been pretty, it's been pretty cold and wet recently, <laughs> but let's, I'll, I'll let you know in March, April. Good. Okay, nice. Okay, brilliant, Tom. So let's move on to your third and final choice of living space, which is flat five, number four, Cubitt Street, London, King's Cross. So this presumably is the flat that you were living in when you came up with the idea for Cubits, was it? Or when you first came to London? Tell yeah, us about uh, it. Yeah, a bit of both. So I moved to London in the, when was it, 2002 and had no idea where anything was. So I would just go to different areas of London that I thought sounded kind of interesting and just have a little wander around. I remember being quite disappointed that Crystal Palace wasn't, there wasn't an enormous shimmering Crystal Palace when I got out <laughs> the tube. I knew I wanted to live in central London. Everything was expensive, apart from these two pockets where it was really cheap, comparatively. Uh, one was Elephant and Castle and the other was King's Cross. So I had a little wander around King's Cross and I thought, this is all right. This is pretty handy. Mm -hmm. There's seven tube lines and these bit and all right, it's a little bit rough around the corner, but what an amazing like place it would be to live. And then yeah. I ended up stumbling along Cubit Street, which is a pretty nondescript residential road uh, and ended up moving into a flat there, which is where I lived for nearly 15 years. King's Cross and the areas around it became like a constant source of inspiration. So much so that when I finally took the plunge and decided to start my spectacles company. I named it after the original residents of that area, the Cubit Brothers. And tell us about the flat itself. I mean, was that aesthetically up to this kind of standard or what, it, what was it like? It certainly isn't modernist. It's a low rise council flat. It's one of the most nondescript flats you could ever see in your entire life you'd walk past it now and yeah you literally wouldn't notice it but I absolutely loved it for me it was more than just a flat and a place to live it was my home it was I remember when I first moved in the flat on the ground floor flooded the reason it flooded I subsequently found out the flat is built on the Lost River Fleet which is one of London's Lost Rivers probably the biggest and most famous which actually runs from just down the road, uh, Hampstead Heath, down into the River Thames. And for a long period of time, it was the dominating factor in King's Cross. But I love the fact that there's literally hundreds and thousands of years of history beneath your feet. You just need to scratch a little bit below the surface or wait for it to flood. <laughs> so was modernism a, a passion of yours at that point? Or did you so I had no discover idea, it I didn't, later? Yeah, I, didn't, I had no idea what modernism was, right? And it wasn't really until moving to London and discovering the Icecon building, right? right. So and I remember I went to Hampstead Heath and got lost, wandered down Fleet Road and Lawn Road and then came across this completely graffitied old dame, like obviously <laughs> past her splendour, um, but it comes out of nothing, right? You're just walking down the street and suddenly it appears, this, this ship liner. No one living in it apart from uh, like a guard, um, but it was graffitied, all the windows were smashed. There had been previously a lot of pressure to tear the whole thing down. But I, I just thought, what is this? I don't understand what this is. I can't take this thing in, but it's really, really interesting. And doing a bit of research and going down to the V&A and seeing the penguin donkey and all its glory sort of ignited this sense of kind of interest in me that has perpetuated to this day. So tell me about Qubits as a brand. What's your professional background? How did you get into the idea of being an entrepreneur and starting a spectacles company? Look, for me, it's just I've worn spectacles for a long time. They have always been an important part of me 
Um, I can't function without them. And I, I could just never really understand why most people who wore spectacles didn't feel like that. So many people would wear them begrudgingly, literally go out of their way not to wear them. This mm. object that gave them vision because they had such a negative emotional relationship with it. And that just didn't make sense to me. Because again, you look at people like Le Corbusier or Philip Johnson or, you know, great spectacle wearers. And to them, it's an extension of who they are as a personality and has a whole set of values under it. So I kind of started the, the company with an idea of spreading a bit of that really, make people really enjoy and appreciate and care for this object that sits in the middle of their face. Yeah, it's amazing how it does become a part of your identity, doesn't it? Because I'm a glasses wearer myself. And if I look in the mirror, it doesn't look right when I'm not wearing them. It, it, it changes the width of your face. It changes the size of your eyes. That's quite a big responsibility, isn't it, as a designer? What's the approach that you take to the designs? How do you go about it? A pair of spectacles is literally an extension of a human being, right? You know, the shape of the bridge is negative of your nose. It needs to fit around your temples and around your ears. And so starting with this kind of view of what is a human face, what is the function of this object that fits into your face, and then building out from that, I think is really fascinating. And then overlaying the aesthetic element. And there's very few objects that really combine the idea of optics, physics, phrenology, design, fashion, materiality, durability in one single object. You guys have got a very fun thing it's put on your website, isn't it? This is called the speculator. Yeah, exactly. Where you can look at the screen and it will show you what you look like with, with all sorts of ridiculous frames on your face. Yeah, exactly. So you just go on the website and it uses the, your camera on your phone or your computer and then it overlays a frame on, onto your face. If you click on the little Cubits logo at the top, there's a little kind of hidden Easter egg that then takes you into a historical storytelling of spectacles. So you can try on the first spectacles ever made. You can try those mudlark frames on that I was Excellent. mentioning. Because that, there's something quite nice about bringing a bit of life to this without being earnest, right? Because my experience of going to an optician growing up was it's very kind of formal. It's akin to going to a dentist. And actually the process of choosing a pair of spectacles should be incredibly enjoyable. It's really fun, right? So Tom, why do you call them spectacles rather than glasses like everybody else in the world? <laughs> so, uh, first of all, it's a, you know, it's a very traditional way of describing them. If you read all the old optics textbooks, when the kind of British standards were the highest in the world, they were called spectacles. So I kind of like the, the reference to that. But also this idea of taking what is a very traditional industry that has been around for multiple centuries, but modernising it without compromising of the, the quality of the product, I think is a really nice tension. I also like there's it has a dual meaning of obviously a pair of spectacles, but also a spectacle. The idea of making people interested in this thing, this event, this object. And I think... A lot of the the nomenclature that's been used more recently makes it seem more ephemeral. So, for example, in Cubits, we ban the word eyewear because to me it, it feels that it's being driven by fashion. And actually, spectacles to me, they're a really important thing. They sit in the middle of your face. They define how you see. They define how you're seen. So, yeah, language is quite important. We have the same tension with what we do, of course, because... I'm on a bit of a drive at the moment to ban the word property in our office because I think property is too much about the the idea of this thing as a a financial object and not as a home. And I strongly believe that we sell people a home. There's always an interesting discussion that we have every time we meet someone, which is what do you do for a living? And we say estate agency. And that 
clearly gets a very mixed reaction. I think it's actually quite important as a company to have a a language that you can all subscribe to that actually represents what you feel about what you do. As one company owner to another, I think the last question I want to ask you is, what is it that keeps you awake at night about running Qubits? What do you find challenges you the most? The plan was, let's try and start this little company, make some nice spectacles, hopefully get a few people wearing them. And it's kind of grown like that every year. The hardest bit is just kind of managing that growth, really. You know, we don't sit down and think, how can we be the biggest? How can we, you know, take America? That's just not how we think. We're on this kind of meandering path, which brings sort of beauty and colour to the whole journey. Mm. But um, I don't know where it's going to lead us. Tom, thanks so much. I really enjoyed meeting you again. And um, thanks for showing us around your flat. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This episode was produced by Caroline Hughes and the executive producer was Kate Taylor. So that you don't miss an episode, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and we would love you to rate and review to help other people find us too. Head over to our website, themodernhouse.com, where you'll find more information about the homes we talked about today. 